Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, the September 2020 Rotto Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And I gotta say folks, September was a very, very big month for me. I mean, not only did we play a whole ton of games, I'm gonna be talking about 27 games today, which I think might be a record for the Roundup, I'm not quite sure. But, uh, for me, even more importantly than all the great games Jan and I played, my first board game design is on Kickstarter. Dun dun dun! Not exactly. Um, I have not gone back into the design business. Yes, I did video games for 20-some years, I'm, I'm, but I'm not becoming a board game designer. However, a very close friend of mine uh, has put his game on Kickstarter. It just went live this week. It's called Plunderous. I've talked about it in the past. Maybe you've heard of it. And personally, I have now spent, over the last nine months, over 200 hours contributing to the design of <clears throat> this game. Now, my main focus has really been on the cooperative slash solo expansion that you can get as part of the bundle for Plunderous, which is on Kickstarter now. But I've had a pretty big impact on the uh, the standard version of the game, which is a 4X uh, steampunk pirate game of, you know, it was exploring, expanding, exploiting, and exterminating. Uh, I'm all about trying to make that expansion work without the extermination between players. But, um, like I said, actually, over the last nine uh, months, more and more more and more of my ideas have made it into Plunderous as well. So I'm kind of a co-developer maybe on Plunderous. And so if you're interested in what a design from me might look like, again, that's not what this is, but this is my this is probably as close as you're ever going to get. If you want to go check out Plunderous, which is on Kickstarter right now, you can hit that eye in the top right corner of the screen to go learn more. But enough self-promotion. Uh, let's get that out of the way. And actually, let's go on ahead and start with the monthly countdown. As always, I'm going to be talking about our Jens and my least favorite to our favorite game. So there will be a new game of the month. And as has been the case now, before we get to Jens and my countdown, I need to talk a little bit about a few games that Shea Parker, my uh, main run-through contributor, has done. He uh, played three games this month, Starting with, oh, what was it? It was, um, oh, right, Embarcadero, which I think is maybe still on Kickstarter Live right now for another day or so. It's just about over. And, you know, as always with our paid Kickstarter pre- our paid Kickstarter previews, you should bear in mind uh, that, uh, you know, we were paid mostly to do the run-through, but we gave our opinions. Now, I have not played Embarcadero, but I've watched Shay's run-through, and it looks very... Very, very cool. This is, instead of being a tile laying game, this is all about, uh, you know, doing sort of area control and building up a big communal, like, little city of sorts, container city, uh, which is based on the real historical development of San Francisco, California, where when ships docked during the gold rush, People uh, got off and started, you know, headed to the hills, but they turned those ships into actual living um, buildings, and they built buildings on top of the ships. So this is a game where you're building and, you know, 
uh, basically claiming territory spreading out, but also building upwards. And it seems really, really very clever. I chose not to cover it for the channel because I was worried it might be a little bit too you know, in your face with the area control elements, but you can check out Shay's run-through. It's really a very, very clever design, uh, Embarcadero. And then Shay also hit Galaxy Hunters, which is an interesting game because at first glance, this looks like a big, elaborate Ameritrash-style game where you have your piloting space mechs and flying all around the galaxy, hunting down kaiju monsters to destroy them. And so you might think this is a big, dice-heavy, you know, crazy action fest. It's actually a worker placement game, um, you know, where you are actually sending your workers out to, uh, you know, gather harvest resources from the various planets that are under assault and under threat from the big space monsters. And um, it's just that one of your workers that you can send out happens to be in a gig- big gigantic space mech, and so that worker, uh, who is supplemented by all the other workers, can actually go out and fight the monsters. And it seemed very, very sharp. I was really surprised in that it is very Euroy. It's kind of around the same level as almost a Lords of Waterdeep style, you know, gateway to worker placement. But with a very dramatic, very kind of anime-ish feeling, uh, you know, setting, which is very different than the normal worker placement games that Jen and I play. So that was really interesting. And I think that Kickstarter is actually over for the paid coverage that Shay gave it. But it seemed like a neat game. If that's something that sounds interesting, you can check it out. And then finally, Shay also covered Inventure Quest, which is a very sharp, neat-looking little game. If you go check out uh, Shay's run-through of this, which, again, was a paid preview because it's on Kickstarter, he actually got his roommate, Nick, to play along with him, and it's a lot of fun because this is a game that turns uh, collaborative storytelling into an interactive adventure uh, because every round uh, we draw a bunch of cards that give us kind of settings and scenarios and circumstances we find ourselves in and we use those to collaboratively tell the story of the of the world we're going through. By default it's fantasy, but I believe the system is broad enough that you could pretty much uh, put it in any setting you want. Sci-fi, you know, modern day, whatever. And the trick, the gameplay element as I understand it from watching Shay and Nick play is whoever is the lead player player, based on what their character can do, comes up with a solution that, uh, you know, how they want to solve the current roadblock they're facing. And the other players have to uh, take their best educated guess as what they think the lead player is going to do. And if they guess correctly, we succeed! And if we guess poorly, we fail and fall back. So it almost kind of has kind of like a Dixit feel to it, but it's a cooperative game, which again is all about collaborative storytelling. And if you watch Shay's video, you'll see he and Nick, they went crazy deep into the lore of this world. They were kind of filling out as they experienced it. Very, very neat game. And definitely, I hope... If that sounds at all interesting to you folks, again, this was a paid Kickstarter preview. Um, it's still live right now, and it seems like it's uh, you know it's kind of slow going, but it's such a clever design. Check out Shay's video, um, you know, decide for yourself. But I really do hope this succeeds because the industry needs more really outside of the box stuff, and this does a lot of really neat things. So that was Shay's third game he covered this month in Venture Quest. All right, so. We are done with Shay. Let's start Jen's and my countdown, starting at the top of the list, the game that resonated with us the least. That would be Draconis Invasion, which I have to admit, I've had a prototype of 
for years. I've been carrying this around, and it's been on my Rado Request Geek List. You go to requestatraw.com to request that I film games, and if people thumb it, it'll eventually get filmed. And Draconis Invasion, after all these years, finally had enough thumbs that Jen and I sat down and played this prototype I've been carrying forever. And it's a sharp little deck-building game. It is a kind of dark fantasy world uh, where players are competing to be the best at saving this world from all the monsters by building up their deck, filling it full of defenders who they can use to fight monsters and score points. It's very Dominion-y in that it follows the system where as part of setup you put out all the different cards that players can buy so everybody knows it's it's not like an Ascension style thing where new cards are coming in all the time and so you can make strategies okay if I buy some of these those will combo well with those and, and all that sort of thing and the core gameplay is solid. Here's the interesting twist to Dominion style gameplay. There's largely two types of cards you can buy. Defenders, which are heroes and uh, monster killers and stuff like that, that go into your deck because they can actually generate the fight power to fight off all the bad guys and score points. But there are also action cards, which are much more dominion-y. You know, they allow you to get extra actions or do extra buys or find ways to convert resources into other resources, all that kind of stuff. Here's the thing. Your startup deck, much like Dominion, comes with a bunch of money. And, uh, and, a, and a few basic little uh, you know fighter cards. And as you start re- increasing your ranks, putting really strong fighters into your deck, the problem is when you draw them, the fighters, well, you had to pay money to recruit them, and then you have to pay money again to get them to fight. So if you have a really big, super strong dragon slayer who won't go fight unless, he's, unless you've got five gold, you got to pay five gold to recruit him, you got to pay five gold every time you want him to fight. And so, as you're going through the deck, you will uh, sometimes you know, get these really big superheroes at the same time that in your hand you had a bunch of money cards. Think Dominion. And other times they'll come up and you might not have enough money to get them to fight. And so... It's a it's an interesting idea, and I think it works. It's kind of similar to Dominion potions in that um, you know you get cards that need this particular resource potions to be able to run. Here, the money that's in your deck is the resource you use to buy more cards, but it's also the money you use to pump into your existing cards to make them work. It's a cool idea, but it does add kind of a lot of variance and almost randomness. And um, you know, we thought it worked, and I, I gotta say, folks, I mean, like this game has been out for quite a while. It's had expansions. It's very, very popular. It has a huge following. But for me and Jen, we found ourselves thinking, well, you know, this is very dark and grim. I think we'd rather just play Dominion, quite frankly. Um, And so it didn't really resonate with us. But like I said, there's a lot of people out there that really love my number 24. And I do agree. It's got some very, very cool, interesting ideas. Draconis Invasion. Then we move on to number 23, The 7th Citadel, which is uh, my first paid Kickstarter preview on the list. And this is a follow-up Not a sequel, but a follow-up to uh, one of the biggest, hottest games that have come out in the last five years, The Seventh Continent. And uh, this is a huge box full of dozens, if not hundreds of hours of gameplay as you slowly explore. Uh, in, in Seventh Continent, it was a, uh, you know, a, a dark jungle strewn, uh, you know, mysterious island. Now you're in a fantasy world, you know, trying to bring light back to a desolate, blighted land that's overrun with monsters. You know, typical fantasy stuff. And so it's a, it's a new setting, but really the same gameplay as Seventh Continent, which has always been very, very cool. This idea that you're 
deck of cards that represents your life is also where you're drawing cards to give you special abilities. And um, when you try to do skill checks, you have to draw multiple cards and try to get successes off of them instead of rolling dice. So management of your cards is everything. The biggest difference between 7th Citadel and 7th Continent, the previous one, is the old game was a... What did I call it? I called it an exploration uh, game. Uh, predominantly. Uh, whereas this is an adventure game. And so a lot of the tropes are in Seven Continent, like having to feed your people or starving and going hunting and all that are gone. Now you're much more like a shark, moving forward, having adventures with more of a purpose. instead of. Uh, and in that way, I think Seventh Citadel will appeal to a lot of people that maybe found um, Seventh Continent a little bit too... Uh, directionless, for lack of a better term, because you have a goal, you know what you're going out there doing. And also, if you played Seventh Continent and wish you had a lot more fighting, uh, Seventh Citadel is your game because, of course, you're, go- you're coming across monsters, and the monsters require now they're much tougher to beat. They have multiple stages. Some of the you know the skill checks with fighting and whatnot has really been elevated and advanced quite a bit. So, why did it rate so low, considering Jen and I love Seventh Continent? Um, Two things. One, this universe you're in is very, very grim. Very dark. Very heavy. And we were uh, playing through it, Jen's like, this is just too dark for me. I would like to be in a happy fantasy universe if I could. Um, Or even just kind of like a medium, where as opposed to some of the really harrowing stuff you come across here, as just Jen found it. It was not to her taste. Of course, there's a lot of people who love grim, dark stuff. So more power to you. But you know, Jen just did not enjoy her time here. And then also, like I said, Seventh Citadel really doubles down on the skill checks. You do a lot more of them. They're a much bigger part of the game. And honestly, seven, uh, skill checks were our least favorite thing about Seventh Continent. And so uh, you know, it, it accentuates the stuff we didn't like. It created a universe Jen didn't want to be in. So while it is still a great game. If you enjoyed Seventh Continent, I suspect if you don't have those two hangups, you'll really dig Seventh Citadel. For us, it comes in at number 23, the Seventh Citadel. Then we go on to 22, Silver and Gold, um, which is a very neat roll and write from Phil Walker Harding, who is, uh, you know, definitely a designer of note. I mean, love Baron Parks, love so many of his designs. And I got to admit, when I first played this last year at a convention, and Jen played it too, we were taught by somebody, and we loved it there. We had a great time. And so I was so happy to finally get a copy of it. And I was planning on doing a run-through. And Jen and I sat down to play it at home. And we're like, oh, we weren't quite taught the rules right. And there are a few key rules in this game. Which, by the way, has a brilliant core conceit of having play... It's a roll-and-write where you write on your cards. That's just Fun. It is really neat, and you, as you fill your cards up, you draw more of them, and you're and you're trying to make combo chains, kind of like a light Gonshon's clever, you know, combo chain explosion type thing going on. There's a lot of really neat ideas here, but there's two things that we weren't aware of from our original play that we do not like at all. The biggest one is there is a healthy memory element, which just does not compute. Do not care for it that um, because you're not rolling dice. Instead, you're flipping cards, and so you know every round there's like a couple of the T-shaped die, uh, cards, and there's a couple of the L-shaped cards, and you're trying to think. Right? Did, did the second L-shaped card come out? I don't remember. When we played it before, we just kept it all public knowledge so everybody could look. But when we found out that no, you don't get to do that. You have to memorize. They're like, no, no, no. Hated it. And, you know, because silver and gold would have been top 10 
easily this month if it weren't for the memory requirement. I do not see why it's there. I suspect the developers just did it to make sure people don't overthink and overanalyze, but it it really uh, chafed our hides that the game expected us to have to memorize what cards it played if we wanted to play at peak efficiency. The other thing was, it has this very weird turn order structure that just makes you spend a lot more time fiddling about, right, who's first player now? Who's the lead player? Who breaks ties and all that? I'm not at all keen on how that was done either. It should have been resolved every round instead of every turn. Something like that. So those two things really kind of put a damper on enthusiasm for silver and gold. I do think it's sharp if you don't mind a little bit of memory, or if you don't mind house rules, because this game could instantly be fixed by two of the simplest house rules ever. Don't make it memory. Let players look and see what all cards have already been played, and only move the ter- only change turn order at the end of every round, or something simple like that. But I got other games to play. I don't really want to pursue house rules. And uh, so Silver and Gold, sadly, comes in at number 22. But again, it's a really good game, which is two really dumb rules. Alrighty, then we go on to number 21, Renature. Now, this is the latest from the design uh, super duo, Kramer and Kiesling. They are back. And this is a competitive game where we are trying to rejuvenate a kind of blighted area of nature by repopulating it full of animals. And as the animals come back in, that starts bringing, you know, the, as, the, as the fauna comes back in, the flora starts regrowing. And um, it's, it's we, and we're doing, bringing these animals in with dominoes, using standard domino rules where, you know, matching animals have to match against other animals. Although the interesting thing is we are kind of constricted to all these different lanes that we can expand so it's not quite so free reeling as regular dominoes and that creates some very interesting and challenging puzzles especially when you um, get into this spot where some symbols on the dominoes are wild cards and you can put them wherever you want so there's a lot of interest we loved the domino tile laying and the way the animals kind of expanded and literally rejuvenate this bit of nature renatured the game that was awesome the thing is after a given blighted area is completely surrounded, it is scored for majority based on who had the most plants grow because they placed dominoes next to it. And that's fine too. We don't mind a little bit of cutthroatedness with area control. Okay, well, I came in first, you came in second because I swept in there. Here's the problem. The, uh, in addition to the dominoes uh, that belong to individual players, there, or I'm sorry, the, not the dominoes, the plants that we use to mark our territory as we're renaturing. Every player gets a few neutral ones as well. And in the two-player game, you get a ton of neutral ones. And you can really use those in an offensive manner to try just to rip victory without giving yourself anything, just really trying to screw with your opponent. And it was a bit too much for us. You know, We were like, oh man, I'm sorry I have to do this. I know you worked really hard. You're going to get a lot of points. No, you're not, because I'm just going to throw a neutral in there that um, ties you. doesn't even have to beat you, just ties you so you don't get anything. And then, because I was suddenly in last place, I jump into first place. It's a cool scoring mechanism. And at higher player counts, where you don't have very many neutral tokens, I don't think it'd be a problem. But in a two-player game, I forget. It's like not quite half of your tokens are neutral to emulate a higher player count, and it just made the game super cutthroat. And as much as we like the theme, we like the presentation, we love the dominoes, we even were okay with the area control, but those neutral things just really get let you stick a knife in a lot, and they're a bit too mean-spirited for us. I suspect this game would go over gangbusters with us as a higher player count. But as it is, as a two-player game, Renature makes our number 21 of the month. Then we've got number 20, Sabotage, which I'm not going to sing the song, although now it's in my head. I shouldn't even have said it like that. Um, but anyway, um, oh man. Okay, 
Got it. All right, focus. Focus. Alrighty. Sabotage. Uh, from Tim Fowers. This is a ginormous box game that is all about spies versus spies. Or more to the point, spies breaking in to an evil villain's secret lair. Um, and that represents one team of players, two spies, sneaking around trying to shut down doomsday machines. The other two players, because this is a team-based game, are the supervillains traveling around trying to find these spies. Because everybody's playing on either side of a big dividing wall. So, uh, this is a lot of deduction, hidden movement type stuff. Um, driven by dice, interestingly enough. Every round, there's four dice rolled, and these are the dice that all players get to use. So, I might think I know what you're doing, Spy. I know where you're going. Um, I know what you want to do, but I realize, oh, you didn't roll this. There are no sixes rolled this round. So you can't do it. Um, and therefore, I think maybe that means you're going to try and do something else or go in a different direction. Unless maybe you've earned some um, tokens that let you change the value of dice. And I'm not quite sure. Have you used those yet? What's going on here? And it's a brilliant game. Um, you know, Actually, Tim Powers uh, published another game, which actually made my recent top 10 fillers, called Fugitive, which was a two-player only game where one player is the fugitive trying to get away from the marshal who's hunting him down. This kind of feels like that on steroids. It's a big, huge monster production. Gorgeous miniatures for the characters and the doomsday machines. Uh, you know, the box itself unfolds to become this big screen that makes you feel like you're in a secret lair. Everything about it is, is gorgeously produced, and the gameplay is super duper sharp. Um, here's why it came in at number 20. Ideally, this game is be played best as a four-player game with two teams of two. Because then, the supervillains, they have to talk and the spies can hear it. The spies have to talk and the supervillains can hear it. And so you get that cross-chatter because this game is all about trying to anticipate what your opponents are going to do. And that's very, very cool. This game is definitely best at four. You can play it competitively as a two-player game, but that means each player has to control... I, if I have to spies, I have to control two spies, you have to control two villains. It works. It's much more chess-like because there's no chatter to overhear, but I don't think it has the same zest and life that it would as a four-player game. And now here's the interesting thing. The reason I really wanted to seek it out is because you can also play it two-player cooperatively. Because there is a downloadable app that will control the supervillains who are traveling around the board trying to track us down while we sneak around trying to shut down the uh, the the uh, super weapons. And that's what really intrigued me. Because when it was on Kickstarter a couple of years ago, I played an early prototype of it. I thought, this is great! Um, and so, I really wanted to try the final thing. The, again, the production is great. The gameplay is solid. Here's our issue. The cooperative Cooperative game works. Jen and I sat down. We definitely had interesting decisions to make. Um, it seems like the uh, the AI-controlled villains... The app works pretty well. The AI villains are interesting opponents. But ultimately, Jen and I found... Without that human competition... Um, we were ultimately able to beat them pretty easily. And uh, they just didn't provide as much challenge, ultimately, as we wanted. And uh, the, the game has a, a little bit you can do to kind of mess with the difficulty, but not enough to where it was an interesting challenge. Plus, I'll be honest, what Jen and I really want to cooperatively do with this game is team up and be the supervillains. Because I think the supervillain players have the tougher role. Uh, because uh, you know they're, they're trying to protect, they're trying to be reactive to the proactive spies. And I, I mean, I hope... Somewhere down the line, the app is expanded 
to uh, allow for that side of the co-op as well. Because if so, this game would rocket quite a bit higher and it would probably become a keeper for us. Just, um, I just can't think, I don't think I recommend the game unless you're being able to play it as a four-player game. It works as a two-player chess match battle of wits if you're looking for that. But Jen and I, we don't want to be quite so move, counter-move against each other. The cooperative game works and if you could play as both sides and the difficulty were tweaked to be a bit higher and the other thing that's missing from the app is when you're playing against that app, it just sits there silently and doesn't give you anything to feed off of. It doesn't have that human energy. I kind of wish the app almost had just like a little, if you remember the old Sid Meier Civilization talking head, just taunting us or doing something so we feel like we're um, against a living opponent as opposed to an app that just reports, well, there was a, a flamethrower was fired over here. Did it affect you? And you know, it becomes a little cold and impersonal. And I think they could have done a little bit more to give the app more of a sense of personality. So that's what's missing. Sabotage actually made no pun included. It was their number one game of the year for 2019. And they're very respected reviewers. And it makes total sense. But they'd be the first to say, as a four-player game. Jen and I play as a two-player game. And it's good. We've enjoyed it. And I'm hoping the app kind of grows over time. We will see. But currently, Sabotage is my number 20 of the month. Then we've got number 19, Dungeon Drop dropped too deep, which is another paid Kickstarter preview. Uh, it's an expansion for a game I covered last year, and Dungeon Drop is so cool. It's this idea of you get a whole bunch of cubes that represent monsters and treasures and and um, walls or pillars, and you shake them up in your hand, you drop them, it spreads all, and that creates a dungeon. And then players competitively try to eyeball the most interesting rooms in that dungeon to loot without getting killed by monsters using their special powers, because you get a, a race with special abilities and a class with special abilities, and it's very neat. Um, the original game was great. This expansion adds a lot of really cool stuff to the core game. All of it is good. New, um, you know, new player powers, new types of cubes, and also some tweaks to the original game that makes the original game retroactively even better. But what I was really excited about with Drop Too Deep was it also introduces co-op rules. So you could play this cooperatively instead of competitively. And I think the co-op rules work okay, but at the end of the day, Dungeon Drop, I think, is still best as a competitive game. Uh, particularly because the co-op rules don't really have anything built into them to deal with like uh, quarterback alpha players. And uh, not that that's a problem for me and Jen, but I would worry that some people might have a problem. If you, if you have people in your life who tend to be very domineering in a cooperative game, they will be domineering in this game. And I would have liked to see a couple of little tweaks to the co-op mode to minimize that, if at all possible. I mean, you know, and that's really not the fault of the game. That means play with people who aren't jerks. But it is a little bit of a problem in otherwise a lovely and wonderful box full of goodies. If you enjoy Dungeon Drop at all, you gotta get this. Bringing in the cool little, um, uh, he, you know, the cubes that represent the super boss monsters that have faces. I mean, it just adds so much more um, pizzazz and zest to the game. Watch my run-through if you, if you want to know more, or my paid preview, I should say. But yeah, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great addition to the game. I just would like to see a little bit more work put into that co-op mode to bump it up a few more notches, which is why it's number 19, Dungeon Drop, Drop Too Deep. Let me go on to number 18, which is Mariposas. This is a very hotly anticipated game by the industry and by me because it is Elizabeth Hargrave's follow-up to Wingspan. 
And now that's an over-exaggeration. First of all, Elizabeth Hargrave did put out another game between Wingspan and this called Tussie Mussy, but that was a very cute, tiny little micro game. It was actually, it was like a contest she entered and it, they turned it into a game. Mariposas is, is, her, her, is her follow-up in terms of big box experience. Lots of components, lots of art, lots of theme, and, and, you know, and a big, compelling game. And Wingspan is one of the best games to have come out in years. It's an amazing um, uh, freshman effort from a designer. And so, a lot was riding on Mariposas. Her big, uh, you know, even though it's from a different publisher, uh, to be fair, uh, you know, it's it's her next big box game. And I gotta say, Mariposas delivers. This is a very, very sharp, well-considered, beautifully designed, wonderfully elegant, definitely much lighter. This is almost a gateway or a gateway plus style game, whereas Wingspan was definitely a heavier engine builder. This is all about monarch butterflies migrating north from Mexico to through North America, spawning, going through multiple generations. You will see butterflies die so that others can continue on in their footsteps with special powers and and um, you know variable objectives. Uh, you know a lot of really good stuff. Overall, it's very well considered. My only problem, my thing that kept this out of, say, like um, easily the top 15, maybe even the top 10 is, for two-player, there is no scaling. And that's kind of a bummer. Because uh, one of the objectives you can chase after is uh, basically trying to find hidden cards and do set collection based off of, you know, all the cities have these way stations and they're all face down at the beginning of the game. And in a four-player game, those way stations are going to be hit by a lot of players. So over time, more and more of them will be revealed and you can make a strategy out of it. If you're playing a two-player game and I go for way stations and you don't, I pretty much got to search them all by myself. And so as a, you know, I'm having to do the work of two or three players, which means my strategy has to become so focused and is so luck dependent that it just drives me nuts that the tiniest bit of extra work wasn't done for scaling. There's actually a brilliant decision. Uh, one of the posters on my video suggested, and I think this would fix it um, instantly, that every time a player in a two-player game makes it to a city and they reveal a way station so you know more about the set collection there, that player also gets to reveal any other city anywhere they want on the board. So that kind of replicates in two players doing way stations. It's like four players' work is getting done. That would just be an instant super fix. And you know what? I hope that Elizabeth and publisher AEG step forward and maybe say, you know what? We like that. That's an official variant now. Because honestly, as I said earlier, I'm just not that keen on um, unofficial variants when it boils right down to it. Uh, uh, you know, because I, I'm not. I don't want to do tens of uh, hundreds of hours of playtesting, make sure an unofficial house rule doesn't break things. But if, you know, the designer or the publisher says, no, 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 that will actually work. And if that makes it fun as for a two-player, do it. So fingers crossed that comes along or something else. Because, I mean, this game is nearly flawless. And as a four-player game, I think it's just and the epitome of design, elegance, and beauty. But as a two-player game, I would have liked to see some player scaling. It wasn't there. So that's why currently it sits at number 18 of the month, Mariposas. Then we go on to number 17, Rossio, which is a very, very cool tile-laying game. Everybody's working in a communal area. And what's interesting about this game is every you know, there are a series of public objective cards that players are drafting for. And when I grab this particular card, 
Everybody knows I want to try to make this. You know, this is actually based off of a real square in. It was either in Portugal or Spain somewhere, and we are basically the architects who have been hired to decorate the square with all these wonderful, colorful tiles. But we're trying to create specific patterns of tiles because we have objectives that mean we can score points. But once we've uh, got these objectives active, we only get a small window of time to score them before they go away. So if I've got this objective that says, "Hey, I want a, a row of four red tiles." And I've worked really hard, and you haven't stopped me because players are working in a communal area to get those four red tiles. Now's the time I score it, and I'll get to score it for the next couple of rounds, and then it's gone. Um, so knowing when to score, or wait, can I get two of these rows out, and then I should score it? But is the game almost over, and I won't get to score it the full three times? There's very interesting considerations in this game for timing. Um, because you know, once you play these cards, the cards you have are multi-use. You either play them so that you can declare, this is what I'm scoring, and for the next couple rounds you get to score, and then they're gone. Or you play them face down and say, for the next few rounds, this card will just generate more money so I can buy more stuff and have more control over the tile laying and the card drafting. And that's brilliant. It's such a simple idea, and it works really wonderfully. The tension of, when do I play this card? I'm out of money, but I can just score one more time if I get this out. Really great stuff. Uh, honestly, if it weren't for the fact that this is a fairly cutthroat game, this would have ranked much higher. Here's the thing. Like I said, folks, this is a game where it's a communal plaza that we're building. And you can see what I want to score. You know what card I drafted. And it means you spend a lot of time in this game trying to build your own patterns that you want, but also trying to cut the other player off so they can never finish that pattern that you know they want, because otherwise, because they paid a lot for that card. And it got just a, we spent too much time in this game focusing uh, equally, because it's a two-player game, so every point I make you lose is a point I gain, basically. So we spent an equal amount of time not building ourselves up, but slowing each other down, and it was just a little bit too much in your face. Uh, if this was a game where everybody was building their own private plaza, oh my gosh, it would be amazing. Uh, because everything else about this game, if you don't mind a little bit of cutthroat, oh, I see what you're trying to do there. You're trying to get a second one so you can score an additional six points for the next two turns. No, that's not going to happen. Boom, I put this tile down. Your hopes and dreams are dashed. But if you like that, or if you play at a higher player count, where you can't afford to target one player and try to cut them off, and so instead you just build your O things, I think either way, Rossio is going to be a blast, and it should have made my top 10 of the month. But as a two-player game, it's once again the, the uh, you know, the... Zero-sum nature of it makes it more cutthroat than it otherwise would be, and it became too cutthroat for us, even though I loved everything. The way that the restrictions on how you lay tiles is great, the drafting is great, the limited windows for scoring, everything about this game is super sharp, and I highly recommend it. As uh, for Care Bears who want a higher player count, or if you're at the lower player count, people who don't mind a little bit of uh, sneaky backstabbery. That's my number 17, Rossio. And we got number 16, Sonora. This is a brilliant idea. This is um, replacing the roll and roll and write with flicking. Because we are playing a... Uh, half of this game is flicking discs out onto a board, trying to hit certain targets that represent different eras, er, areas of the Sonoran Desert uh, so that we can score points in different ways. Because wherever our discs end up means we trigger them and score them on one of four spaces on our private roll and write boards. And each one of these four boards for, what is it, the, the desert, the canyon, the ruins, and the uh, the mud 
cracks, I believe. Each one of them is basically its own little mini-game. All four of these areas score in very different ways. And um, one of the big things is there's a lot of crossover between this. I could be scoring really hard in the, uh, the, the, the River Creek and trigger bonuses that allow me to then do combo chains that score in other areas, and there's a lot of that. So the riding part is great. Think of kind of like a slightly lighter, but even more varied, with like four completely different mini-games, versions of Gone Shown Clever. And that's saying something. And then on, back to the original thing, the disc flicking is really good too, because everybody gets two things. They get, um, their discs are valued, so you want to get, do I want to get my level 1 disc in this area, or my level 5 disc, because that's going to feed into how I score um, you know, in the writing part. But also, I love this idea, and I'd love to see it more. When it's your turn, you get to flick two discs. It's not like my turn, I flick one, then the next player, I get to flick two. And that is so great. Um, you know, uh, you know, your first flick could be a test, and your second, if you're feeling a little rusty, or your first flick, oh, that failed, I'll use my second flick to knock the first flick, and, you know, lots of cool ideas there. So overall, this is great. Why did it not come in higher? Why is it number 16? I have one complaint about it. There is nothing in the way of, uh, you know, any kind of variability to represent skill level. And if I'm a significantly better dexterity flicker than you, I will crush you. There's no two ways about it. The best you could possibly do is saying, well, okay, I can't, I, I cannot target, I cannot hit the targets like you can. All I can do is just flick wildly and create chaos and knock things around. And that's what Jen and I found. She could not beat me because I'm just a better disc flicker than her. And so, what? okay, she had no strategy to her flicking and instead she just kept flicking my stuff and couldn't actually target her own things. And... I really wish there was something else, something like, uh, you know, it has a system where players can earn reflex. So, like, maybe at the end of every round, whoever is behind gets extra reflex. So, if they're falling behind because their flicking skills aren't as good, rather than just having to go full chaos agent, I'll just destroy everything because I can't target anything I want, give them some more reflex to, you know, as a compensation. Because, I mean, since, I mean, this is true for any dexterity game. If I'm better at the, uh, the dexterity element than you, I'm probably going to win. And so you bring dexterity into a roll and right, you're going to have this issue. I wish they would have addressed it. I think there are a few ways they could have done, and if they had, this would have ranked significantly higher. That said, it's a keeper. We really like it anyway, even if um, there's no built-in handicaps, and Jen really suffers as a result in our number 16 of the month, Sonora. Then we go on to number 15, Alice's Garden. Which is another one of those polyomino tile laying style games that are all the rage. You know, think Tetris turned into a board game. And, um, you know, so there have been a bunch of them. What makes this one special? There's a couple of things. The biggest one is uh, that the tiles that you that we're going to be drafting from every round, the shape of the tiles is actually chosen by players. It is not just left to fate that you draw randomly and you just get what you get like regular Tetris. Players have a lot of control. And that becomes a very interesting strategic because you don't know what's going to be on the pieces, but you can decide what the shape of the piece is going to be. And that just gives you a lot more control than what you normally see in these style games. And that's very cool. Another thing I really like, I love the theme and I love the way that the thematic elements are integrated into the gameplay. This could have just been a completely abstract game, but the developers went the extra mile and tried to uh, make it, make the world come alive and make you know consistent thematic sense. Very nice. Not all... Um, I mean, some games just don't even bother. Uh, again, I mentioned Gone Show and Clever a lot this month. Uh, but I appreciate that they did integrate theme and they did it well. 
Uh, there's one other element about this game that I really liked a lot. The first time, the first few times, I should say, Jen and I played it, but that's because I got one rule wrong. There's this interesting thing that if you play wrong, and if you when you watch my run-through, you'll see I talk about this in the final thoughts. And to, con- to, to contradict everything I just said earlier in this run-through, I have a house rule to propose for this game because we played wrong our first couple times, and it so improves the game. Um, and... I am rating Alice's Garden, number 15, as a really solid, kind of like 7 out of 10, great little Tetrisy game that we like a lot and we're keeping. This would have probably, this would have been my number 6 of the month, played with our house rule. And that's in spite of the fact that, as I said earlier, I don't like house rules. I'm worried it might break the balance of the game. I'm actually talking. I'm trying to contact the publisher right now to find out, does my variant break the game? Because it makes the game so much better! And it would have been my number six of the month. And so maybe it ultimately will be if the publisher say, yeah, that works. That doesn't break anything. That's a nice kind of hardcore variant that really ratchets up the tension and creates some new um, decisions that you have never seen in any Tetris-style game before that makes the game brilliant. Makes it a solid 8. Um, but as it is, I'm, I'm leaving it w- based on the official rules, which is why Alice's Garden is my number 15 of the month. And again, my run-through will go up shortly for that. I'm just waiting on Paulo to goof-check it, and you'll be able to see what I'm talking about then. So anyway, let's move on then to number 14, The School of Sorcery. Dr. Finn is back. This is a remake of one of his best games ever, the Institute of Magical Arts. And... Um, it's really, really interesting. Uh, so, you know, the core game is still the same. This is a battle line style game where each of us are vying for dominance over a row of cards that represent points or special abilities. And the way it works is every round we roll some dice and everybody sees what everybody's rolled. And then everybody has cards that they secretly deploy to the different dice. Um, and then we reveal at the same time what I do with that five, what I do with that two. And we see how everything shakes out. It's always been a brilliant system. It's still a brilliant system now. And in fact, the main difference between School of Sorcery and Institute is uh, it's been streamlined. Some of the weird kind of quirky out there rules have been kind of stripped away. Um, You don't have to worry about resource gathering anymore as an action you have to do. Now it just happens automatically so you can focus just on the area control. And overall, it's kind of, I would say it's a slicker, more polished design. Although, interestingly, I'm surprised, it feels like, and I have to go back and check here. Right now, I'm just going to say it feels like it actually plays a little bit longer. Like 10 or 15 minutes longer than the original game did. I always felt like Institute was a very quick game. Originally, I put it on my filler list. My first filler list I did five years ago, because it was a fast game. I wouldn't put School of Sorcery. It takes a bit longer. It takes like a good 30, 40 minutes, because this is a two-player-only game. And don't get me wrong, that is a tense, fun-filled 30 or 40 minutes, um, you know, with you know, trying to second guess your opponent, where you are they going to zig and they're going to zag. And plus, I should say, some new elements have been introduced that are brilliant. But I'll be honest, I kind of miss some of the quirkiness of the original Institute of Magical Arts. Some of the things that were stripped out to make the game just more tight and focused. I really liked the the astral plane and some of the other stuff. Um, and I kind of liked. No, I you know, I don't automatically generate resources. I've got to devote some of my dice to doing that, which means I might be, if I'm falling behind, as opposed to everybody just like constantly getting an influx, so it's only the fight. Now you have to decide, in the original, you have to decide, when do I step away from the fight? Now it's all the fight all the time. And it's still great. It's my number 14 of the month. But I... I, I I, I think, um, and I, I think for a certain type of player, this is significantly better because it's easier to learn. It's, it doesn't have quite the weird little rules, um, and it's it's much more in your face. It's much more interactive. You're always focusing on trying to second guess your opponent with some really cool bluff moves you can pull off that are brilliant additions. 
but I still might like Institute better. But don't get me wrong, they're both great. Uh, but anyway, that's currently my number 14 of the month, the Institute, or not sorry, no, the School of Sorcery. Okay, then we go on to number 13, or do we? There we go. Come on, PowerPoint. There you go. Dreamscape, the expansions. Now, I covered Dreamscape a couple of years ago. Heck, it went back before I left Malta when it was on Kickstarter. And I thought it was a brilliant, puzzly, um, you know, travel around this, you know, dreamlike universe, activate all kinds of cool special powers to harvest shards that you can use to build your own dreams to score lots of points. I thought the base game was brilliant. And um, I finally got a full retail copy of the game. And the retail copy um, has as part, you know, it, um, in addition to the retail copy of the game, which, by the way, is still brilliant, a couple of little tweaks have been made to the original game. I mean, actually, one I'm not quite sure I like as much. In, in the prototype I did, you played through five rounds and you got five turns each, or, you know, five turns each round. Now you play through six rounds and you get four. So you get one less turn overall. That's no big deal. Uh, because instead, you're getting more opportunities to get end-of-round bonuses, because there's now six end-of-round bonuses instead of five. So that all comes out in the wash. But I kind of like the bigger, heavier turns, where you're doing five things on a turn instead of four. Although, to be fair, that just made the game much more analysis paralysis And so probably the new six and four is better than the five and five. But I kind of miss the old one. It'd be easy to change, I suppose. But anyway, uh, beside the point, um, what I decided to do when I got the new thing, I was just like, oh, should I do a run-through? Oh my gosh, look at all these expansions! Four different little, like, mini-modular standalone expansions. You can mix and match however you want. And I was reading them. Oh my god, these are so brilliant. Why don't I cover these? And so I did this crazy run-through where I showed one of them, the uh, uh, the dream animals. And then, I mean, I extended. I talked about the other three and how they all changed things up. And so, my number 13 of the month is Dreamscape with all these expansions because it was already a brilliant game and it's just gotten better. So thematic. So, everything in this game is driven by the rules and consistencies and the narrative of this um, Dreamscape or sometimes Nightmarescape, depending on which modules you're playing with. And uh, everything I loved about it two or whatever it was, three years ago, I still think is absolutely amazing with my number 13 of the month, the Dreamscape expansions. Okay. Let me go on to number 12, Monsters on Board, which is another paid preview uh, for a game on Kickstarter. And uh, yeah, this is a dice drafting game. And dice drafting is my number one highest ranked uh, gameplay mechanism of all time. If you go back and watch my top 10 gameplay mechanisms, love dice drafting, as does Jen. And both Jen and I adored this game. It is full to the brim of gorgeous art from the Miko, very evocative. It has kind of a silly, um, fun theme of monsters trying to scare all the villagers, not kill them, just scare them a little bit because they feed off the fear energy so that they can summon the big, um, you know, I keep calling him Jack Skeleton. But I Spider Jack um, to score lots of points. And at first, it looks with the spook mobiles, which is how you um, transfer dice from one player to another. These cool little jalopy cars that, that hold the dice that represent all the the uh, monsters you invited to the to the uh, to the big monster ball. Basically, um, it's a really cute, adorable game. And you'd be forgiven for thinking, well, yeah, this is a game for families for kids, right? No! Do not be tricked. Do not judge this book by its cover. This is a crunchy, crunchy 
not heavy, but not medium. Definitely mid to heavy weight game because as you're drafting these dice, these are multi-use dice and there are so many things you do with them. There's so much consideration you have to take into account. Not only the normal, oh, I can't let you have that because it's really good for you, but am I using these to um, you know, work in the ritual, to make money, to buy more stuff? Uh, the dice all have different strengths in terms of how many resources they bring in, but also what's usually the more resources they bring in, the less, or victory points, I should say, they bring in, the fewer special powers they give you, Plus, the game, again, is gorgeous. It's got really awesome minis, unless you go for the standee version. But even the standees look adorable, because it's the Miko art. And it's really sharp. Really enjoyed this one quite a bit. But it just goes to show how great this month was. Because, um, you know, the top 10, I mean, these are crackerjack games, just uh, across the board. So my number 12 is Monsters on Board. And then we go on to number 11, Village Green. Um, and this is a very sharp, fast-playing little card game where we are playing cards out to a grid. And the interesting thing is, there's two types of cards. The, the Village Green cards, which represent how we're beautifying our little bucolic village, you know, putting in trees and structures and, and uh, different types of flowers. And um, there's another type of card. And we're playing those cards, the green cards, into a 3x3 three three grid. Um, and, and, and and we're really restricted in where we can because we have to put matching things next to each other. So there's a tight little puzzle there. Super tight. Super, super tough to pull off. But we're also grabbing cards that we can put on the outskirts of our town that means, hey, if I put this card in the third column, all the cards in the third column score this way. But at the same time, I put this one in the second row, all the cards in the second row. So now the card I put in the place has to fulfill both of these objectives that I chose. And so I am creating my own problems by, um, you know, and it's a really sharp, puzzly design. I did, we did have one issue with it was it had kind of a weird anticlimactic ending where the ending just kind of drug on a little bit. And originally I was going to actually rate this quite a bit lower. But I, you know, I talked to the developers about it, and they said, yeah, we can see what you're saying. It's a two-player game. That could definitely happen. Tell you what. And they released a, 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 an official variant that fixed it for me. And, you know, and this, so this is kind of like, this is why I'm hoping for something, you know, like when I, when I talked about Mariposas and I talked about um, Alice's Garden, you know, just a little bit tiny more work of tightening things up for two-player, fingers crossed, because Village Green got that extra love. And uh, I talk about it in the final thoughts to describe what it is, just a couple little tweaks that makes the game really purr. And so that's why it's a super sharp design and it comes in at number 11, Village Green. Then we go on to number 10, The Viscounts of the West Kingdom. This is the third and, I guess, final game in the West Kingdom series. It previously had Architects of the West Kingdom and Paladins of the West Kingdom. And all three of these games are really brilliant, wonderfully uh, crunchy and combo-laden um, you know, uh, Euros uh, with, again, great art from the Miko and really sharp design. And I think that every, what everybody wants to know is, well, how do I rank them? As far as I'm concerned, Viscounts is the best. I rate at the top. I do think, arguably, Paladins is maybe the overall best design. But Paladins, I had some real problems with, with just blind luck draws that really kind of impacted the, the end results that I hated and I wished wasn't there. Whereas Viscounts, I have no real complaints at all. This is just a brilliant game. And the core of it, it's actually kind of similar to the same system I talked about earlier in Rossio, where you put cards into play, and they're going to stay in play for a few rounds, and they keep sliding over, and you have to keep feeding new cards with new abilities and objectives and powers, and then the old ones go out. Viscounts takes that idea from Rossio and turns it into a much heavier game, as opposed to a more gateway-ish, you know, tile-laying game, and it's brilliant. It works so well. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's so many paths to victory here. Uh, with all the special powers you get, the production is great. It's just you know, knocks it out of the park. The best of the West Kingdom. Although, who knows? Um, you know, the saga of the West Kingdom is coming soon. It turns all th- four, three West Kingdom games into cooperative games. Maybe that'll shift things around. But, yeah. Super impressed by the brilliant, lovely production and the really sharp gameplay of my number 10 of the month, Viscounts of the West Kingdom. Then we go on to number 9, Unforgiven, which is another paid preview. And this one actually isn't out yet. This goes, I think it launches on the 6th, if I recall correctly, of October. It'll be coming soon, anyway. Um, but And so you'll see the run-through at that point. But I filmed it last month because I had to get the uh, prototype into the mail to go to another reviewer ASAP. And so I did, and folks... This is hyperbole of the highest order, which is why I, again, remind you, this was a paid preview, so if you want to take my painters with a grain of salt and all that, to me, this is a Seven Wonders Duel killer. And that's saying something, because Seven Wonders Duel is one of the highest rated games in the entire board game industry. I think it's in the top 20 on Board Game Geek as the highest, most loved games of all time. Unforgiven takes a lot of the core drafting pyramid elements of, of, of uh, Seven Wonders Duel, but then melds that with a much richer and more engaging and intricate game that we're trying to win. You know, uh, Seven Wonders, don't get me wrong, Seven Wonders Duel is great, but for me and Jen, it was too cutthroat. Unforgiven show Seven Wonders Duel how it's done. It's wonderfully thematic. It's based on the real historical trial of one of the alleged conspirators in the uh, the Abraham Lincoln assassination plot. Uh, turned out in, in real history, she was the first woman to ever be executed by the federal government of the United States. And it's still a hotly contested trial to this day if she was innocent or not. And so players will get to replay history and see if maybe uh, you know they can save her instead. Um, and it's all through drafting all these cards from the pyramid although it's cool it's a double pyramid that goes in both ways so it's kind of like um it's kind of like spinal tap taking it to 11 and it works it's so cool there are at any given time four different tug of wars we're playing and you could be engaging in those tug of wars you you could ignore that and try to focus on the jurors that are right in front of you as opposed to vying for the ones that are on the common card there are dice that are constantly coming in you can buy them to supplement the cards you're drafting this game is just super duper smart and every turn almost without exception i'd be like I need to know what you're doing. If I take this, are you going to take that? And it works so well. And um, you know, the attention to historical detail, really bringing um, you know, the, you know, basically telling a new story that brings you brings history to life is very much appreciated as well. It's my number nine of the month. Although, like I said, it doesn't go on Kickstarter for another week or so. Unforgiven. Then we go on to number eight, Endless Winter, which is also launching on Kickstarter, I think in late October. But again, I had to get the video done earlier so it could get sent on to another reviewer. So that's why you gotta consider this a paid real preview preview because the Kickstarter's coming in a few weeks. This is another game, first of all, let's get out of the way, full of gorgeous art by the Miko. And I'm so happy, folks, that the Miko is my number one. If you ever go back and watch, spoiler alert for my top 10 artists, game artists, the Miko was my number one. This has been a very good Miko month. And, um, you know, and, and Endless Winter looks gorgeous. But aside from that, it is a brilliant prehistoric worker placement game. Um, and uh, there's a couple of things that really makes it stand out from other worker placement games. One is the worker placement is incredibly tight. 
there are only four worker placement spots. But any number of players can go to the spots. It's just that the first player to go to one of the actions that lets you, you know, expand your tribe or gather resources or go hunting for, you know, animals that you can convert into points or pelts or food or whatever. You know, all the kind of stuff you would expect thematically. So there's only four actions. The first player to do one of the actions gets a huge bonus, like a game-changing bonus. So, if you go to the action I wanted to do, um, you then leave me with a tough choice because I really wanted to do that, but now I don't get the bonus. Do I go ahead and do it anyway, or do I wait until next round? Because if I can get there ahead of you, and in this game, I, it is rare I have seen a game where turn order matters as much as here. You are constantly aware of turn order. Will I be able to get there first this round, or should I not? Uh, I don't. I should go on ahead and do this now. Burn in the hand, two in the bush type stuff. So that stuff is brilliant. Really good. Uh, to watch my number eight of the month. But that's not all. Because the workers, every this is also a deck builder of sorts. Because when I send a worker out, I can supplement them with cards from my deck that make them stronger or give them different abilities and whatnot. And so I am having to make tough choices. Where do I send my workers? How do I supplement them with the cards that I've recruited? It's just great. This game, uh, I, I think this is really going to blow up on Kickstarter. It really should. Jen and I loved it. Uh, this was another one that um, you know easily made Jen's top of the month. This would be in her top three. It's my number eight. Really good stuff. The Endless Winter. Um, I think the full title is Endless Winter uh, Paleo-American Saga or something like that. But anyway, let's move on now to number seven. Cafe. And this is a tiny little game. This is just basically a deck of cards and some cubes. Although they are uh, tarot-sized cards. And uh, this is a game... That is the latest in a gameplay style that is fast working its way up into my favorite ranks. Um, you know, if I when I do in a few years my revisit of my top ten favorite mechanisms, what I'm calling card patching or card patchwork might make it into my top ten. This is the idea that I put a card down. These cards have little grids with different icons on them, and I put more cards either adjacent or on top of existing cards to try to create patterns within these little uh, tableaus. I'm kind of patching these cards together. I love this. I love it in Honshu and Hokkaido. I loved it in Carson City, the card game. I loved it in Sprawlopolis. And, um, and you know, there's so many of them. I love it going years ago, back in the Hanging Garden. I loved it in uh, Patch History. It's a great mechanism. And here's the deal, folks. Cafe is probably one of the best implementations of it ever. Because up until Cafe, all games that do this, you're pretty much patching the cards together for one main purpose. To try to create certain patterns of icons to score points in various and sundry ways. You still do that in Cafe, but there's an extra element. Not only am I trying to get these cards put together to, you know, to, to, you know, to have... To, you know, to, to get them well laid out, to make nice patterns, but also, I'm building an engine. Because this is a game where I am running a full coffee industry of of uh, growing and harvesting the beans, drawing the beans, roasting the beans, and then shipping them back and serving them. And so, um, I am the patterns I'm trying to make is to create a more efficient, easy to run um, engine to generate coffee. And this adds such an incredible level of extra depth uh, that so eclipses any other card patching game that I've seen. And I believe I've played most of them now that I was just blown away. Jen and I were just like, just gobsmacked how sharp and clever and like, why has no one else done this before? It's, and because it's great. 
and it's my number seven of the month, Cafe. And I and I say that in spite of the fact Jen and I have zero interest in the subject matter. Jen wished it was cocoa beans instead of coffee beans, but C'est La Vie, Cafe, number seven, great stuff. But there's even more, because number six is Marco Polo 2 in service of the con. Uh, which we did as a live playthrough in front of an internet audience. Jen and me played through the whole game from start to finish. Had a great time. Did make a couple of goofs at the end, which unfortunately Paulo's never going to check that. Uh, but say la vie. Still, it gave a good impression of what the game feels like. And the game feels great. Marco Polo was already, Merchants of the Silk Road, was already a fantastic worker place, dice worker placement game. And the interesting thing is, in service of the con, originally started out as an expansion to the original, but the more they developed it, the more they said, you know what, we've made enough changes, we want to make it its own separate standalone. And, um, I don't know, personally, I would have rather they just made it an expansion and, and kept the, the same, but as it is, we are definitely going to keep both. And what everybody wants to know is, well, if I'm only going to buy one, which should I get, Marco Polo 1 or Marco Polo 2? There are a lot of really cool ideas, really neat special powers, so much fun stuff, which is why I wish it was just an expansion. Um, But if you're trying to decide, should you get Marco Polo or Marco Polo 2, it comes down to how challenging do you want the game? Because if there's one unique thing, a memorable thing about Marco Polo is you have to work incredibly hard to get meager wins. You have to really struggle. And the game really puts you through the ringer and forces AAA quality play out of you to be able to accomplish major things like traveling the entirety of the Silk Road, for example. Marco Polo 2 decides to take it easy on players. You're still doing... But really, the only big change is, instead of going from west to east, now we start out in the east and we're heading west because we uh, you know, play... We're in the service of the con now instead of you know Italian and European uh, explorers heading east. Uh, um, but anyway, the uh, 2 just makes everything much more laid back much more relaxed. It is much easier to get the resources you need. Uh, it is, I mean, you can do things with ease that would have seemed impossible to achieve uh, in the original game. And so it really comes down to, what do you want more? Do you want a game that really puts you through the ringer or a game that takes it easy? Because they're both great. And the interesting thing was playing it, I personally prefer the original Marco Polo. Jen preferred this. And so, this has actually pushed my overall ranking of Marco Polo up a couple of points on BoardGameGeek, because I, I've combined them into one thing to me, because this is still feels like an expansion. It's just an expansion where you have to buy a full box worth of stuff instead of an expansion's worth of stuff. Because you can actually mix and match components from the two games. Interestingly. So, anyway, Marco Polo was always great. Marco Polo 2, depending on your predilections as a player, is maybe only a little bit less good, or significantly better. But either way, it's my number six of the month. Marco Polo 2 in service of the con. Then we go on to number five. And, oops. Okay, where are we? Here we go. Oh, I clicked the wrong button. Here we go. Number five, once again, PowerPoint. Truffle Shuffle. Yeah. This was a really interesting month, folks. I mean, there were so many really amazing, big box, super expensive, you know, the, you know, the Viscounts of the West Kingdom and type stuff. Uh, games are just totally in our wheelhouse. But this month had a lot of really amazing, you know, tight, little, just a deck of cards, look all the gameplay we squeeze out of it style games as well. And Truffle Shuffle, if I recall correctly, was the best of them. Uh, coming in at number five this month, this is a brilliant game that, well, like Unforgiven before it, takes the pyramid draft structure of Seven Wonders Duel and makes a game that Jen and I love so 
much more than Seven Wonders Duel. And this is from the design trio. I can't remember their names now. Molly, Sean, and Martin? I don't remember. But anyway, uh, the design trio behind last year's super hit... Uh, Point Salad, and earlier this year I covered another game, Dollars to Donuts, so these three love making food-themed games, and uh, we, we've got a uh, pyramid. Uh, we are drafting. Half the cards are face down, half the cards are face up. We're trying to get cards for the simple purpose of completing orders by making certain sets. You know, three of a kind, four of a kind, straights, straight flushes, all that kind of stuff to score points, and the gameplay here is so brilliant, so sharp. Um, because a lot of the cards you get have special powers that let you break the rules and, like, you know, take double turns or, uh, you know, do, or, you know, change the color or the number on cards and whatnot. It is just a blast. It is a delight. We think it's absolutely brilliant. There's a high level of tension because you have no hand limit. You can collect as many cards as you want trying to go for that super high scoring thing. But here's the deal. You're going to go through three pyramids. And when a pyramid is emptied, if you still have cards in your hand, you lose almost all of them. So, as the pyramid is getting closer and closer to emptying out, you are like, ah, I gotta, I gotta fulfill an order, I'm gonna lose all these cards, but if I can just get one more card, I can have the super order, do I push my luck or do I bail now? Really good stuff, we really love this one a lot. Um, my, it could have even gone a little bit higher, um, but there were some vagaries in the rules, unfortunately, uh, that meant I had to completely refilm the entire run-through, uh, because... Um, well, uh, me and not alone, Tom Vassell also made the same mistake in his video uh, because of the way the wording is and the rules. Don't worry, um, you can watch my new run-through. It, it straightens it all out. So I'm maybe knocking it one just because the rules could have been a little bit clearer, um, which is a shame because otherwise I love everything about my number five of the month, Truffle Shuffle. All right. Then we go on to number four, The City, second edition. I lied, folks. There was one other big or you know big game in a tiny box and that is the city. Now I actually covered the city years ago back when I was living in Malta, the first edition which was not available in English. It's taken a long time, but the city has finally it got a reprint, uh, it added new types of cards, tweaked the rules a little bit, not or hardly at all. Really, maybe not even at all. Maybe it was just the, the new cards were added now that I think about it. But anyway, the city has always been phenomenal. The city is basically taking all the rich combo, um, tableau building, um, spending cards to use other cards, uh, beautiful gameplay, uh, Puerto Rico, or I'm sorry, not Puerto Rico, uh, San Juan, or Race for the Galaxy. Pick either of those games, and My City takes that core kernel and compresses it down into a diamond of brilliance. And we love it. We also love its sister title, Jump Drive, which has a slightly different feel. Um, you know, uh, This one is more about... Or, you know, that one's more engine building. This one is more about combo making, really. But, you know, either one is fine, and it's a brilliant game. I have done a run-through for it. No, I didn't do a run-through for this. But again, you can go watch my original run-through where I was playing the German version, and, you're, uh, and, and we were in love with it then. We're even more in love with it now. It's my number four of the month. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant game. Although, if you per prefer sci-fi to... Um, Sim City style city building. Go for Jump Drive instead. But honestly, the games are different enough. They're you know they, they have the core the same core gameplay, but what you do within uh, you know uh, you know the same engine to build different things to score the same types of points. It's great. It's my number four of the month. Uh, the City Second Edition. And now, folks, I'm going to get a little cheeky here. My number three of the month is Plunderous. And yes, 
it is a paid preview, even though this is a game um, that, uh, you know, I, I've been working a lot on the development of it, um, although it is my friend. I mean, I'm not the lead designer. At best, I'm a developer. Maybe the maybe you can consider me co-designer on the co-op expansion when we get that ready. Um, we're working. I could be working on it right now, but i got to film this for you folks. Uh, but anyway, um, this was still a paid preview. So there is the double take my personal opinions with a grain of salt. Not only was I paid to do this, uh, cover this video, because my friend insisted um, that I, I treat this like any other Kickstarter game, but also, I have a direct hand in the development of this game. Although, full disclosure, I do not stand to make any monetary gain if the game funds or however well it does or if it turns a profit or any of that stuff. I just liked helping my friend out and I've spent um, all you know nine months working on making this game better and better. And this is actually the second time I've mentioned, mentioned Plunderous in a roundup because I actually played it a few months ago when um, on Tabletopia uh, with my friend because it was his birthday. And at that point, Plunderous had a minimum player count of, uh, of uh, three. It was at least a three-player game. And, uh, and, and you know, at the time, that was it. It was going to be a three- to six-player game, and the co-op version that we were working on could make it a solo or a two- or three- or four-player game. So that was the goal at the time. Since then, um, the game has gone through a lot of evolutions, in big part because of the lessons we're learning um, from developing the co-op, and we were able to apply some of that stuff to the main game. And now, I'm here to say, Plunderous is a great two-player game as well. And uh, it's it's got a gorgeous table presence. It's a 4X uh, pirate simulation where you're sailing the seven seas, uh, exploring islands, expanding your dominion over those islands, exploiting those islands for resources to convert to points, and exterminating all 4Xs if you want to. Here's the thing. Uh, when, I, when Andy first told me about this game, I don't know, four years or so ago, this was a very war-heavy game. Nowadays, the, there is still the battle. If you want to have that extermination, you can. There can be a lot of in-your-face, you know, players really going each other, trying to move and counter-move against each other. But that's almost kind of antithetical to the heart of the game because th at this point, this game is a Euro. And unlike some Euros, like, say, Scythe, um, you know, where... A lot of people say, oh, Scythe, you don't have to attack. But if you go into Scythe without the willingness to engage in combat, it totally breaks the balance of the game. Because then players just start stockpiling stuff. They know no one will ever steal things. Mechs become underpowered. All, you know, and, and, and the whole game breaks down. Plunderous is a game that is, first and foremost, it's really got a lot of Euro goods conversion, deck building, um, you know, to create your crew, to get all kinds of combos. And, um, and yes, there is the ability to attack players as well. But in this game, there are always other ways to get stuff done. And if you don't want to, if, if you don't want to attack in Scythe, you'll break the balance of the game. If you don't want to attack in this game, it's totally fine because there's a billion other things you can do. This is such a broad horizon, wide open, um, emergent gameplay game that is still driven by three separate objective systems that you can be manipulating and trying to play towards at any given time. It's just brilliant. So if you want to make big, gigantic mechs, this is a uh, steampunk-style game, uh, that will just terrorize the Caribbean, you can do it. If you just want to play a pick-up-and-deliver game, you can do it. If you just want to focus on exploring and converting goods into points, you can do it. Um, if you just really want to you know, do a lot of deck crafting, you can do it. Chances are you're going to do a lot of all of these things. Um, if you want to engage in politics with other players, even as a two-player game, negotiation is a huge part of this game. And it's so rare to see negotiation work in a two-player scenario. And I love negotiating. I, I'm, just, I, I'm so happy and proud to be involved 
tangentially with the development of this game. And, you know, when, when we finally get the co-op um, you know, done and I've, and I've got a prototype and I can film it, I'll probably revisit and, and give a ranking for how I feel Plunderous is as a co-op game. I am rating this, and again, this is a paid preview of a game that I have some hand in the development of. I'm rating it my number three because I am blown away more than anything else by the emergent gameplay world um, that is still given a very beautiful, strong sense of direction by three different objective systems so that you can truly play the way you want and get totally unique experiences every time. Uh, I've played Plunderous a few times now, and I, I just keep getting pulled in deeper and deeper, even though I have no interest in 25% of the game. Well, the interesting thing is, I play this game enough, it might pull me over to the dark side and I might find myself doing some extermination because that's a lot of fun too. Uh, but anyway, that's it. My number three, with all those caveats in place of the month, is Plunderous. Then we move on to number two, Tiny Towns Villagers. Okay, this was the other big game in a little box. Uh, it's, the ex- it's the second expansion for Tiny Towns. It's adorable because you get these villagers, which are these cute little brown meeples that look like squirrels and I think an otter and a bird and, and a porcupine and whatnot. But the interesting thing is you put them on your little tiny town board and if you can build a building on top of them, they then occupy that building and that gives you access to special powers. And every time you play, just like all the building, the combination of buildings is going to be unique every time you play Tiny Towns, uh, the combinations of powers you get from the villagers is going to be unique every time as well. And this adds so much to the game, to what was already a nearly flawless game. My Tiny Towns was already in my top 50 of all time. This only pushes it even higher. Jen and I had a blast playing it this month. I highly recommend it. If you love Tiny Towns, this will make you love it even more. Um, and, you know, and even if there weren't the villagers, just all the cool new buildings that do some very cool Really surprising, outside-of-the-box effects and powers. Just loved everything about uh, my number two of the month, Tiny Towns Villagers. But, folks, there is a number one. And if you've been paying attention to the last few roundups, you might already know what it is. Say it with me, folks. My number one of the month is the... Come on, PowerPoint. Wake up. Yes, Marvel Champions, The Rise of the Red Skull. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, it is no surprise, no surprise at all, that I love... Wait, are you playing? Shoot, my video seems to have frozen. PowerPoint, have you failed me? You were doing so well for so long, and now it seems like you don't... You are not playing. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Uh, ugh. This is what I get for trying to film in one take. I guess I could just go with this static picture, but I queued up video. Why are you not playing? Play. All right, that's the end of the slideshow. Play. Play. There it is. All righty. Some, uh, some growing pains there, folks. But anyway, uh, my number one of the month is... Uh, oh, I know what the problem is. I'm talking right now. By the way, this is a, a test I'm doing, folks. In my roundups up till now... Uh, you can always see the original video of me up in the top left corner of the game, playing the game, and I put a video of me filming the roundup down in the bottom right corner. Somebody suggested I should just override the old video of me with the new video of me so you can see more of the game. So I've done that, and that means I can't tell if the video is playing when it first starts. So that's a problem. But anyway, sorry, that's neither here nor there. There's uh, that's um, some you know behind-the-scenes baseball there. But Rise of the Red Skull, I've been waiting for it since it was first announced. It's the first 
boxed expansion instead of just like little packets of you know whatever it is 60 or 70 cards to introduce new heroes or new villains this was a big expansion that introduces was it five new scenarios two new playable characters a whole bunch of stuff very cool new interesting ideas and the idea of a campaign where you play through all five of the scenarios in sequential order um and uh you know the 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 events of of what happens in one will bleed on into future it's it's a very very simple campaign system if i'm honest i would have liked to see them maybe push it a little bit harder but hey this is the first step and it's very promising for the future and as always I love Marvel Champions so much. This has finally pushed Marvel Champions now officially into my top 10 games of all time. Um, the Rise of the Red Skull. And I thought it was going to be because of the uh, uh, the campaign. But it's really, at this point, it's just undeniable. Every time I play Marvel Champions, I love it so much. I'm continually impressed by the way they keep bringing Marvel Comics to life with these very, very relatively simple and elegant compared to other games like Lord of the Rings the card game or Arkham Horror the card game relatively elegant and straightforward streamlined gameplay that is just um, just a blast. I, I I spent a Sunday playing through all five missions back to back solo and oh man I, I, would, I, I would happily be playing it right now trying more combinations of stuff with Hawkeye and Black Widow finally showing up going up against the Red Skull and Absorbing Man and I mean I'm a lifelong Marvel fan so you always have have to take my enthusiasm for Marvel Champions with that in mind. I mean, this is you know, this is mainlining right back into my childhood and nostalgia triggers and all that. Although, hey, I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe too. And yeah, this this pushed over the top. That said, it did introduce something that I am worried about the future of Marvel Champions. The idea the 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 presumption. Oh. Okay. And it, well, okay, let's try and reset this video again. Oh man, folks. Things are going so well. But anyway, um, coming back, the pre- I, I, I am worried that the developers of Rise of Red Skull are starting to abandon one of the core guiding principles of the design of this game, which is that Marvel Champion Sessions tells the story of the heroic exploits and the day-to-day exploits of their heroes. And there is, while you spend more of your time in costume, because who doesn't want to be a superhero, there is an equal amount of love and attention put into the um, realities of these characters' day lives, which is because these missions aren't just quick one-and-done, hey, it was a big fight and everybody moved on. These missions last for hours, days, weeks, months. And so you spend a good deal of time out of costume, dealing with the loved ones in your life and other stuff. Two of the five missions in Rise of the Red Skull pretty much completely abandon that and just say, we don't care about theme anymore. Yes, you could still, as Spider-Man, go back to Aunt May's house, even though it no longer makes any sense whatsoever. And it's always made sense. They have always stayed true to that, that they give the uh, importance of the narrative of this game, uh, the focus to ensure that you could truly feel like you're living the life of these heroes. And... I'm worried that they're starting to abandon that because two of the five abandoned it here, and they didn't need to. There's a thread on BoardGameGeek where somebody suggested some alternate takes on the the thematic narrative settings of those two missions, and suddenly they work, and I hope this is not a harbinger of the developers saying, yeah, we don't really care about that whole family life thing. We're just all about the punching. Because if that continues, Marvel Champions will probably fall out of my top ten games because... Uh, it's important to me 
the thing that always that allowed for the success of Marvel, um, you know, back in the golden age of comics, was that focus on their personal lives, their life outside of the suits, and that was the most important thing about Marvel Champions to me was the attention to detail there. And if they start abandoning that, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to start abandoning the game too. But it was only two out of five missions. The other ones were great. And the gameplay was still great, but one of the things that makes Marvel Cha- puts Marvel Champions into my top ten isn't just the gameplay, but it is the narrative. And so, fingers crossed, the the narrative continues to deliver on the promise of Marvel Champions, which otherwise is still, um, you know, it's anyway at this point, it's my number one game of the month of September, and. Phew, that's it, folks. All right, sorry for the technical glitches there at the end. What are we at now? We are at an hour and 17 minutes. Uh, hopefully you had fun. Hopefully you forgive me my excesses uh, ranking a game that I'm personally involved in at number three. But again, I, I, at least I'm declaring it, so you can bear that in mind. But that's how I feel. Oh, by the way, did I mention Plunderous is also another game? This was a good month for Miko Art fans. Uh, but it was just a good month overall. And uh, we move into October. Uh, we start to see some Essen titles. I'm very excited about that. If you want to know more, you can hit that I in the top right corner of the screen and go to my Coming Soon page, where uh, I think by now I will have put together a preliminary list based on voter feedback uh, for people who back me on Patreon. And um, otherwise, folks... We are done for the month. So in closing, I am going to say thank you once again, as always, to the fine, fine folks at Fun Games Games for supporting the show. And uh, thanks for watching, everybody. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.